Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Andy Staple Show. It's a Dear Andy edition. You ask, I answer. And as always, you guys have some great questions. I've put out the call. We've done it on the athletic website, done it on Twitter, and we're going to mix it up. We got this podcast version of it. We've got the, the written version of it, which will be completely different questions and will include a random ranking not going to have a random ranking tonight because we have a, uh, a very interesting barbecue-related question that I've got to get to that I, I feel like I probably need to take a little time on to, to explain the answer to. But first, got to get to some college football questions. Obviously, there's one burning topic this week in, in college football, and, and that has been the focus of almost every question I've gotten, which, I, listen, it's a wild situation, so I, I understand completely. This one comes from at Wiley E. Dog on Twitter. If a program were to be unhappy with their coach in late February, would they be better off keeping that coach until the season, firing the coach now and hiring an interim, or firing the coach now and hiring from a limited pool, asking for some friends down south? And and so what Wiley means in terms of firing and hiring an interim or hiring from a limited pool, the, the limited pool one would be a, a permanent replacement, not someone who would be the coach for 2022 and then you move on and and do a full search at the end of of next season. So obviously this is about Auburn and I think Auburn has sort of telegraphed what's going to happen with Brian Harson. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, but it's probably coming sooner rather than later when the president gets up on Friday at the trustees meeting and says they're trying to separate fact from fiction and they'll come to a decision and they put out a statement on Monday talking about what they're they're investigating that they're they're asking players and, and coaches what's going on in the program and that they will come to a decision the fact that you've admitted there's a decision to be made means you're going to move on so now it's just a matter of of how you do that how much of the 18 million dollar buyout you wind up paying that's that's really the crux of that issue so Wiley's question sort of spins this forward and I think that's probably where we need to be looking forward now and it's an interesting question because I think my instinct was to say you would go interim, like say you appoint Cadillac Williams head coach in, in this situation, and you have him coach this season. And if he's great, then then you keep him. And if he's not, then you do a full search after next season. Um, keeping the coach, I don't think is an option now. I think Auburn has sort of blown that out of the water. Some of the stuff that's been done behind, you know, on the internet, and, and you notice we have not mentioned certain things, certain rumors that have been going around. There's no verification of any of that stuff. I'm not going to talk about it unless we can verify that. And I realize it's it, you, you guys have had some fun with this on the internet, but these are real people, and these are their personal lives. So I'm, I'm not getting into that. And the way this has been fought by whoever is trying to get Brian Harson out of there it's not pretty. And, and, and I don't know. 
I don't know how you how you come back from all of this if you're Brian Harson when clearly they don't want you. And, and honestly, if I'm Brian Harson and I know I haven't done anything wrong, I'm going give me my 18 million bucks. So I, I wouldn't want to be back there because they they clearly have decided they're done with him. So what do you do? I, I talked to somebody earlier this week who's hired football coaches before, and they had an interesting take on this. And and they've not hired in February or in a, in a, a non-traditional hiring time. They've had to hire when everything was going. And they said it might actually be better to try to hire in February. And the, the reason being, there's not a bunch of stuff flying around like from this this AD who has a job open or this agent who's trying to position their candidate for for a different job there, there's not as much misinformation you you are aware of who's really interested and who's using you for leverage because you you really can't be used for leverage except against the current school that the person's at and if you happen to know somebody there then you you can probably figure out what what that person's statuses and, and how much leverage they can get. So, you know, you think about some of the more recent ones where this has happened. I think Michigan State two years ago is, is probably the best example where Mark D'Antonio dips out right around signing day, the, the February signing day, and leaving Michigan State without a coach and they had to figure out what to do. Well, look at who they went after. They, they, they went after Luke Fickle. He didn't take the job. Uh, Dave Clawson was contacted and, and said, no, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good at Wake Forest. They offered the job to Mel Tucker. He turned it down. They fattened the offer, and then he took it. And that's worked out very well for them. You know, I, I, he's got a big old fat contract now after a great season this season. Did great in the transfer portal last year, and so I think you look at that hire, and then you look at Kansas had to do this last year, where they wound up with Lance Leopold, who I think wound up being a very good fit at Kansas. It's a hard job. We don't know how many games he's going to win, but he certainly seems like he's a good fit for that program for what that program needs right now. And I wonder if being the only ones in the market made it easier. Now with Auburn, there will be coaches who want to coach at Auburn. You know, it I would Hugh Freeze would take the job now. That's one of those Auburn has to decide if they want to deal with the PR hit of, of hiring Hugh Freeze because it's not just the NCAA stuff with him. Obviously, they did hire Bruce Pearl to coach basketball who had an NCAA show cause, and <laughs> Bruce Pearl has the Tigers number one in the country. As as I record this, they're playing Arkansas, so I don't know if they're going to win this game, but they're still one of the best teams in the country, and everybody loves Bruce Pearl there. They just gave him a brand-new contract that they, they believe will keep him locked in until he retires. So that part of the, the Hugh Freeze equation I don't think they would have an issue with the reason he got fired at Ole Miss ultimately you know he's calling basically escorts on the road that was found through uh, phone record searches that were done during all that period where he was he was being investigated and, and Houston Nutt was trying to get Ole Miss to apologize and Houston Nutt's lawyer found all this stuff that part Auburn would have to deal with the PR hit on that and the question is would, would they be willing to. And at this point, Auburn's reputation is not great. You know, we're, we're talking about them like they're the most dysfunctional place in America. So I don't know that they would, that would be as big of an issue. Uh, Bill Clark at UAB knows the landscape there, uh, was a high school coach, would understand how to recruit there. Uh, you know, you go, you got to level up, you know, can you, can you get 
the kind of players that Kirby Smart, that Nick Saban, that Jimbo Fisher, that Brian Kelly will be after, that that would be the big question. That, I think that would be the question if, it, if you're talking about like a Jamie Chadwell from Coastal Carolina, who's been successful in the South at, at multiple levels, but has never had to coach at the Power Five level, never had to recruit at the Power Five level. So those would be questions. Jeff Grimes is a name that's come up. He's a former Auburn offensive line coach. Uh, he's the offensive coordinator. Baylor now was the OC at BYU. And when Zach Wilson was lighting everything up, he's one that, that his name I think would pop up if this thing opens. So I, I think there would be a pool. Would it be as big of a pool as if it was say Oklahoma? No, I, I think Oklahoma is a very aligned place. You know, I, I know I wrote this column about Auburn and I looked in the, in the comments section and and they said, oh, it, you know, it's all about recruiting. It sounds like Ari Wasserman. And then the next person said, no, you know, it's Andy because it used the word alignment. And I know I use the word that word a lot, but it's important to these coaches. It's important to good football. But like the reason Ohio State is always good is because everybody pulls in the same direction at that place for the most part. Oklahoma, generally everyone pulls in the same direction. Texas they don't all pull in the same direction. It's quite obvious they don't. And you've seen what that does to a place. Auburn, same thing. And I think that produces that roller coaster effect at Auburn. But the difference between Auburn and, and some other places is that Auburn has gotten to the mountaintop fairly recently. I mean, they they won the national title in 2010. They played for it in 2013. There's no reason to think they can't get back there. And you know, I, I do think... Ultimately, this is about recruiting. And the, the highest ranked player in Auburn's class would have been the 18th highest ranked player in Alabama's class. And this is this is supposed to be your best recruiting class. Your your second class, your first full cycle class. You know, Nick Saban, when when he was in Alabama, landed probably the best recruiting class of all time in his first full cycle class, the 2008 class. And he just lost Louisiana Monroe. So that's the, I think the, the deeper issue. So that will be a priority as they're looking and, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with, but I, I do think probably just go ahead and try to hire the permanent coach. It's not July, you know, you're about to start camp. You need to, you need to get somebody in in time for spring practice, but you can do that. And is it going to be awkward? Yeah, but you already made it awkward. So you may as well just go the full awkward and, and deal with it. I think that's doable. And I think there, there would be a decent enough pool. It's it, look every coach who would want a big time sec job. And there's, there's a lot of coaches who would want that. Not every coach is going to want Auburn because of the, the dysfunction that you are seeing play out publicly. But a lot of them will, most of them will. There will be good options if they wind up having an opening, which it, it, it sure sounds like they will. So, uh, Wiley, if I was giving them advice, and they certainly don't want any advice from me, I'm sure, but I'd say if you're going to do this, don't do the interim thing. Go ahead and, and just hire. We'll be right back after these words. Got a question from Real BBBBB on Twitter. I think I might have given him too many Bs, one too many Bs. It's Four Bs, real B, 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 B. There we go. Why don't ADs construct a contract so that if a coach doesn't meet some metric, either recruiting ranking, NCAA rules violation, et cetera, they get fired with only a percentage of the total buyout. Right now, a coach gets the entire buyout or nothing 
unless he agrees to negotiate, which is dumb. In other words, rather than Harson getting 18 million or nothing if they find cause, why wouldn't an AD do a contract where coach loses some portion of the buyout if he doesn't do X or if he does do Y? So this implies that writing a contract is a, is a unilateral thing. It's not. There's two parties here. And Brian Harson had leverage when he got the Auburn job. So Russ Campbell and Patrick Strong, his agents had some favorable leverage to work with. They didn't have to just take any old deal. You know, I, I, there, there are cases where a coach has to take just any old deal, but Brian Harson did a good job at Boise State. And then Auburn had tried to hire Billy Napier had kicked the tires on Brent Venables, both of them, for the reasons I just talked about, the alignment issues, decided not to go there or not to engage further in conversations about the job. So, you know, Russ and Patrick know this. They're not dumb. They're good agents. And they're going to use that to get more for their guy. And so this is not the full amount of, of Brian Harson's contract. The, the buyout number you've seen thrown around is a percentage of what's remaining on Brian Harson's contract. And, and buyouts can be structured in different ways. You know, the, the, there are full, fully guaranteed contracts. We've definitely talked about that with Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M. That is completely fully guaranteed. Brian Kelly is fully guaranteed with LSU, I believe. Uh, Mel Tucker's contract with Michigan State is fully guaranteed. Uh, James Franklin, con- his contract with Penn State, I believe, is 85% guaranteed. So if, if he were to be fired, 85% of the remaining amount of the contract would be owed to him. So it, it's it's really what the two sides can agree upon. And you can you can raise the, the buyout number and lower the salary. You can raise the salary and, and lower the buyout. There, there's It's really about what you want. And, and a good example of that is after the 2020 season, Dan Mullen sits down with Scott Strickland at Florida. And Dan Mullen's coming off an SEC East championship. Uh, they didn't win the, the Cotton Bowl, but they they had won New Year's Six Bowls the previous two seasons. So Dan Mullen's talking race. And Jimmy Sexton, his agent, sits down with Scott Strickland, and they, they go through the, the deal. And Dan Mullen was making $6 million on his first contract. And so the discussion is, okay, how much more are you going to give him? And Strickland said he'd be willing to give – 1.5 million more per year if the buyout didn't change. And the buyout, this one, was structured differently. These buyouts are not all structured the same. Like I said, some are fully guaranteed, some are a percentage, some are a flat rate, some have different payout structures. Uh, the Kevin Sumlin one at Texas A&M is a famous one uh, because Trace Armstrong, his agent, had written into the contract that you had, to, I believe it was within 30 days of firing. It might have been within 60 days of firing him. But it, within a relatively short time of firing him, you owed him the entire amount that you owed him. And so if you owed him $20 million, it wasn't that you got to spread that out over a period of years. It was, you, you're going to write a check for $20 million right now. And so that's a, a big reason why Kevin Sumlin was fired after 2017 and not after 2015. And... The Dan Mullen one was written in a, in a very interesting way. It was, if you fire Dan Mullen in the first period of this contract, you owe him $12 million. Whether that's after the first year of the deal, the second year of the deal, the only time it changed 
was when the amount remaining on the contract was less than $12 million, which would have been into the next to last year of the contract. At that point, they would have owed the full amount, which would have been less than $12 million. So Dan Mullen's buyout actually worked against him in 2021. So the, they take the deal, because the, the issue was, you know, Strickland says, I'm going to give you this much more money, but the buyout stays the same. They could have said, we'll take less money, but we'd like a different buyout. We'd like a, you know, a higher percentage buyout or, or a, you know, a, a percentage buyout that, that gives you more security if you get fired earlier rather than just a flat fee that you're going to get this year or this year or this year. And so they took the more money in salary. The buyout remained the same. And then last year, when things start to go wrong, Florida's administration looks at this and goes, okay, so it costs us $12 million to fire him this year, or it costs us $12 million to fire him next year, or it costs him to, us $12 million to fire him the year after that. See, if, if he had a fully guaranteed contract or an 85% guaranteed contract, that number's going down significantly with each passing year. The fact that it was the same this year or next year or the next year actually hurt him, I think, because then it, the, the financial incentive to keep him goes down. And so that's the issue. It, it really depends on how much leverage you have, what you want in the deal. And look, I don't blame Dan Mullen for, for signing that deal. Things were going really well at Florida. The idea of getting fired you know, in, in 2021 probably never even crossed his mind. And he's like, oh, well, a million and a half dollar raise yet, or sorry, $1.5 million raise? By all means, bring it on. So I, I get it. I understand completely why he makes that deal, but it, it did wind up working against him. And you know, that's it, it's really all about what, what, how much leverage each side has. And we make fun of the ADs for getting knocked in the creek on a lot of these things. But sometimes you see him use their love. You saw Ward Manuel use his leverage with Jim Harbaugh, not this year, but last year when there was no NFL interest in Jim Harbaugh. Michigan didn't feel like it had a savior on the horizon, but you know, they didn't really need to give Jim Harbaugh a ton of money. And Jim Harbaugh had one year left on his deal, so he needed to get something done to recruit. And so they basically said, look, we'd have to pay pay you $8 million to fire you right now. So instead of that, we're going to give you a new contract that, that goes longer. And we'll give you a $4 million salary, heavy incentives so that if you win big, you get money, which he did get quite a bit and then gave it to charity. But there's only a $4 million buyout. So essentially, they, they put themselves on the hook for $8 million, which is exactly what they would have spent had they fired him. So I, I thought that was that was a good case, a, a good example of a school using the leverage it had when the coach didn't have a lot. But a lot of times, the coaches have a lot of the leverage. And a lot of the leverage comes from there being competitors in the marketplace who might hire them. This gets back to the first question. There are fewer competitors in the marketplace. Really, if you're, if you're talking to a sitting head coach, Let's say, you know, you're Auburn and, and you've got an opening like, I don't know, at the end of this week, you're talking to a sitting head coach. Well, the only other school you're competing with is the one they're at. You're not really competing with anybody else. So that is a little bit less leverage. So I, I don't know if that if that winds up being a different contract, because because of the issues at Auburn, I think they're probably going to have to give somebody a pretty sweet deal. I mean, Look at what Michigan State had to give Mel Tucker. And 
the, the deal he's got now is unbelievable. But the deal he got before was pretty great. He was at Colorado and, and he said no. And they came back and more than doubled his salary. And, and more importantly to him, more than doubled his assistant salary, assistant coach salary pool. And at that point, he couldn't say no to that. And so, you know, it, it's possible that's that's what goes down in this situation. But we'll, we'll have to see what happens. I, I'm fascinated by the, the whole thing. It's it's crazy that it, it was this public. It didn't have to be this public. I mean, if if this doesn't go public, if, if Jay Gouge, the Auburn president, doesn't say, hey, look, we got to make a decision on this guy. If that doesn't go public, then I don't think there's an issue with Harson coming back. You know, if this is just kind of a message board rumor and nothing more, then, then Harson can come back and coach and, and you don't have to pay him $18 million. But at this point, you really can't bring him back. You know, you've kneecapped him in recruiting, although he, if you, you look at his, his class, he, he kind of kneecapped himself. But I just don't, I don't know that there's a, a solution going forward between those two parties. I think we're probably, probably going to have to separate and then, and then we'll see what happens from there. Next question is from Doug. I'm a Kent State alum who's starting to go to some out-of-conference road pay games, basically the, you know, the, big, the big money games where Kent State gets paid to come in and hopefully lose. The home team is, is hopefully paying for a win there. Uh, my choices for 2022 are Washington, Oklahoma, and Georgia. How would you rank them as far as the football atmosphere and the tourism angle, food, etc.? What a great trio of choices. Can you do all three? I realize that might be kind of expensive, but if you could do all three, by all means, do it. Doug went to Texas A&M in 2021, so I'm sure he had a great time in College Station. Let me, before I say this, all of these are medalists. They're all on the podium. If we're watching the Olympics, they're all on the podium. So I have to rank one, one, and one, two, and one, three, but they're all really good options. So you can't go wrong, Doug. We'll, We'll start there. I would say because you went to Texas A&M in 2021, you should probably have Oklahoma number three because the atmosphere is, is going to be a little bit less crazy version of that. Uh, Norman's a great college town. It's, it, and it's really kind of, at this point, the way OKC has grown, Norman's kind of an exurb of Oklahoma City. So it's, a, it, it's part of a big city, really. And it's a it's a nice stadium. The people are wonderful. They they love the Sooners. They get loud. The other two are are pretty unique though. So I, that's the the part where I'd say because you you've been to A and M, you've been to to that kind of part of the world, and you've seen kind of an amped up version of of what you get at Oklahoma. I don't know that you you would want to do that again. You might want to go for something a little bit different. Washington is very different. <laughs> like that you you're not going to find a more beautiful setting for a stadium right there on the lake. I mean it's, it is so gorgeous. Uh the sailboats out there, the it's I mean you you are right there. You you don't until you go there, you don't really appreciate just how beautiful that setting is and really just how beautiful that city is. Seattle's amazing. It's you know just it is it is on the water. It is you know carved into uh, a lot of different isthmuses and, and you know there's different bodies of water that you're that you're dealing with so that you're when you're driving around it's it's gorgeous there are mountains you're going to see Mount Rainier as you're as you're flying in and it's really cool 
it's not an, an SEC type atmosphere in terms of you know the game itself, but Washington fans are great. Washington fans get after it. Now Washington fans and Oregon fans, I'd say, are are probably the the most faithful, passionate fans in the Pac-12, and so. I think that would be great. And then, you know, in terms of the food scene, you get all of Seattle. Oh, it's it, it's a major American city with a vibrant food scene. Obviously, the you know sushi. I went. I found a place called uh, Sukushinbo the last time I was there, which is one of those doesn't really have a sign you can call, but they probably won't answer the phone, and you just sort of stand there and wait and see if you can get a seat at the sushi bar, but it was amazing. And, uh, that, that was fun. And obviously you can go down and, and go down to Pike place market. And it, it's, there, there's so much cool stuff in that town. I went and found, uh, you know, I went out into the, the suburbs and, and found some breweries and there, there's so much there. So you could plan a pretty packed weekend. In, in Seattle. So I think that's a good one. And then Athens, I've, I've on record as saying, I think Athens is the best college town in America. Uh, a game at Sanford stadium is unbelievable. You, you walk up to the place and it's kind of, it's dug into the ground. So you don't realize how big it is until you really get, get on it. And you're like, Whoa, this is 90,000 people. It's loud. It's incredible. If you can stay in Athens, I suggest it. There's some great bars. Uh, go, go see Kelly. Who, who makes great jerk chicken over by the Butts Muir Complex, which is where the where the Bulldogs practice. Um, that's one of my one of my favorite places. It, it, the building's falling down, but it's awesome. And then you've got a bunch of really great restaurants like Farm Cart, uh, Five and Ten. Hugh Atchison is the the chef there, who's a a very well known chef. Uh, there's a lot to do in Athens. And then if you Let's say you either can't get a room in Athens or it's just, you know, too, too rich for your blood. You stay in Atlanta, you know, it, and, and pick a neighborhood in Atlanta that you think is cool that you'd like to explore because you will find great restaurants in Atlanta as well. So I, I think that one I think would be my number one because the game experience itself, you're going to be blown away, especially as happy as they are now coming off the national title. But the town itself, you, you, you know, if you're going to go bar hopping, if you're going to go find some live music. It's, it's a really great place to, to go spend a weekend. So I, I, I guess I would have to rank it. And again, remember they're all on the podium here. Uh, Georgia one, Washington two, Oklahoma three. We'll be right back after this message from one of our lovely sponsors. Next question comes from Chris. Can you tell us about your journey to playing at Florida did you have scholarship offers from other schools? Why did you choose to be a walk-on for the Gators over going to a smaller school where you could have earned more playing time? And, and play is a relative term. I was a human tackling dummy at Florida. I did not get to play. And they were very smart not to play me because I was not very good. And I was very small. I was a, a 6'3", 240-pound guard. That ain't getting it done in the SEC. So why was I there? It, it's, it's interesting because I didn't really think Anybody was going to want me to play football in college until maybe the end of my junior season in high school. I was not, you know, the, the recruiting was a little bit different there. Then it, this was the, the mid nineties, but we had guys on our team who were very, very good. And, you know, the, the year before I graduated, uh, we had uh, Scott Bryan was one of our offensive linemen. He was recruited by almost every, I think, I believe he had over 75 scholarship offers. He actually did sign with Florida. Uh, Lockie Travelos was one of our defensive linemen. He signed with Georgia. Uh, we had guys sign with UConn. So we we were 
we were a recruited school and I went to Lake Mary high school in, in suburban Orlando and I didn't realize anybody might even want me until the end of my junior year when a, an air force assistant coach named Cal McCombs pulled me out of class and sat me down in the guidance counselor's office and said, Hey, have you ever thought about playing football at a service Academy? And I was like, I hadn't even thought about playing football in college. I, I, I don't even, why, why would anybody want me? I, I wasn't even supposed to be the, the starting right tackle on my team. My junior year, the guy who was supposed to start had broken his hand and I had, I had taken over the job in, in, in game one and wound up starting the rest of the season. So, but I, but I didn't know, I didn't think it would lead anywhere. And so when he's going through this, he's like, look, size wise, you, you fit the profile of a, of an offensive lineman in a triple option. And I was like, mm, okay. And then I went home and, and, and told my parents and I was ready to sign right then. And my dad's like, you checked out the service commitment, right? You know, you're talking like six, seven years in the air force, right? And I was like, yeah, they're gonna let me fly fighter jets, right? And I, no, 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 no. You're way too big to fly fighter jets. Nobody's putting you in a fighter jet seat. So Air Force kind of dropped off after that. But I did have several schools recruiting, several smaller schools. The Citadel was in contact quite a bit. Um, the Ivy League schools were in contact. I had pretty good grades. And it was interesting because this was about, I think it was, at this point, it would have been two or three years after the, the Ivies had stopped giving athletic scholarships. They had decided as a conference that they weren't going to give an athletic scholarship anymore. And I remember the, the fullback from our rival high school had gotten a scholarship to Harvard in the last year of athletic scholarships in the Ivies. And I'm thinking, man, full ride to Harvard. Cause I would have jumped all over that obviously if it, had, if that had been available to me, but it, it wasn't, it was basically, you know, you filled out the FAFSA form and, and whatever federal aid you qualified for is what you would get and then you'd have to figure out how to pay for it. And so I, I had those schools on me and it, it was interesting because you, you never know who you're going to, who, who's going to call your house. I mean, I remember picking up the phone and it was a voice on the other end and it, it sounded like someone, you know, who grew up in an Italian family. And uh, Andy, this is, uh, this is James Anarumo from, from Harvard. And I was like, Wait, Harvard? <laughs> really? You, you guys want to talk to me? And uh, it's just like it is is sort of mind blowing. But then you realize, okay, that they're they're just looking for players. And who do you hit it off with? And uh, my parents basically said, pick one of the teams in the Ivy League because you had to pay to to apply. Or sorry, not James Anarumo. It was Lou Anarumo. Should, should know the name because he's the Bengals defensive coordinator now, but he was very young. This is one of his first jobs. And, uh, so I, I, <laughs> I, I was just kind of, my head was spinning. Cause I didn't think, you know, my, I'm just this kid in suburban Orlando. My parents are high school teachers. None of this seems real, but so I talked to, to the various ones. Uh, Penn was kind of the dominant program in the league, but Princeton had just won the league the, the season my senior year in, college, or in high school. Uh, they won the league in 95. And the coach that I hit it off with the best was a guy named Joe Susan, uh, who went on to work with Greg Schiano at Rutgers and uh, then, then became a head coach. And I believe he's back with, with Greg Schiano at Rutgers now. But he was the offensive line coach at Princeton, and uh, he was my area recruiter, but he also would have been my position coach. So I was like, oh, this guy's awesome. And so 
you know, we decided I was going to apply to one of those. And so Princeton was the one I applied to. That's where I took the official visit. Uh, but they, they did their official visit. Some of their official visit weekends they did after signing day because, you know, they were, they were waiting to see if they could grab a guy who thought maybe thought he was going to get a scholarship to, to an FBS type school and didn't. And so that was, that was the plan. But right before signing day, we got a call at my high school from Duke, and it was uh, Joe DeForest was the the assistant coach, and he wound up coaching in a lot of different places. He coached with Mike Gundy at, at Oklahoma State, and uh, and they said get an application in right now just to do. It. And and I had already applied to North Carolina because North Carolina had at that time it was considered the best journalism school in the South. So, and the out of state tuition was not super expensive. So I had applied there, but didn't, I, I, I think I'd sent them a tape. I'd heard nothing from their football program. That was just like, I'm going to go there as a student. And I had actually taken a tour of Duke the previous spring break when I had gone to see North Carolina with my mom. And I was like, well, Duke was kind of awesome too. So, okay, we'll send them, we'll send in this application. And, uh, and, and so that gets done and I get, you know, I, I get the call after signing day. Hey, we'd love for you to walk on. My mom gets so mad because she thought they were going to give me a scholarship. And it's, it, this is pre-rivals, pre-24-7. So we don't really know a whole lot about recruiting. We know what my high school coaches are telling us. And we 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 thought there was a chance that I might get a scholarship to Duke, which, I mean, shoot, if, if, if Duke would have offered me a scholarship, I would have taken it in a heartbeat. But that was not to be. They wanted me to walk on. I'm like, guys, do you know how expensive it is to walk on at Duke? Is you, you you charge a lot in tuition, and so that was that was kind of what it what it came down to because I had I had these walk on opportunities. Uh, there were smaller schools I probably could have gone to, but I had, I had basically decided I want to go to a bigger school. I thought I was better than I was. Uh, let's be perfectly honest here. I thought I was good enough to play at a power five type school. I learned at Florida that I was wrong, but we'll get to that part of the story later. And so I just, I, I sent my applications out. I, I got accepted to, to the schools I applied to. I applied to, say I applied to North Carolina. I applied to Duke, Princeton, Vanderbilt, Miami, and Florida. Uh, Vanderbilt, Miami, there were, there was a, there were some scholarship programs that I qualified for that would have paid about half of it. So, uh, so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do. Uh, I think I sent a tape to Vanderbilt, didn't hear anything back, didn't actually send a tape to Miami, but that probably would have been a good time because all their NCAA stuff was about to happen and they were going to need walk-ons. So I, that probably would have been a place I could have walked on, but again, probably same thing happens when I'm on the practice field, like, Ooh, look at all this. Uh, so get to spring break of my senior year and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I already knew I wanted to do this for a living. I had known since I was about 12 years old, I want to get into this business. But at the time there was no, this business, like I didn't know that I'd have a podcast or that I'd work for the athletic. I never thought I'd work for sports illustrated. You know, that was not something real people did. I just assumed I'd go work for some newspaper somewhere. I'd cover high school sports for like 10 or 15 years. And then maybe I'd cover college. And maybe when I was older, they'd make me a columnist. And if I was lucky, I might make 45 grand a year. And so I didn't think about what it would cost, <laughs> you know, and, and so 
when the, when the financial aid stuff started coming in and I started seeing how much I'd have to pay if I wanted to go to Princeton and, or if I wanted to go to Duke or somewhere like that, I just said, I can't do this because at the time university of Florida was offering really good deals to in-state kids who, who had good grades and good test scores. And so the, the deal they offered me basically covered tuition, covered room and board, and then they cut me a check. So they were going to pay me to go to school and it didn't make sense. Like if I didn't know what I wanted to do, if I, if I thought, okay, I might go to law school or I might try to go to med school or something like that. Maybe I go to one of those other ones, but I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be saddled with loans my whole life. So I remember I, I was in my room during spring break. It was, it was a weekend day and I closed the door and I took a nap and I woke up and I walked out and I told my mom, I guess I'm going to Florida. And that was that. And so the football part of it came later. Uh, Jim Collins was the, the guy who recruited my area for Florida. And, and so my dad worked at a different high school than the one I went to. So when, when Jim Collins went to that high school, they gave him the hard sell on me. And when he went to my high school, my coaches gave him the hard sell on me. And so they said, yeah, yes, fine. Send us a tape, whatever. Come, you know, come up and, and meet somebody. And uh, so I, I, during that summer, I went by and uh, met one of the coaches, one of the assistant coaches uh, who explained what the walk-on process would be like and then uh, get there. And then I did the tryout. Jamie Speronis, Steve Spurrier's right-hand man, run, runs the walk-on program. Uh, they take you through some drills over I, I can't remember if it was over two days or there were two sessions or, and, and then they bring you back in the next day. And I remember sitting in there and, and I was in there with one of the other guys I tried out with and assumed he was making the team because he was a big old dude. Uh, he ended up not making it. I go in there and, and Jamie Speronis gives me the Rudy speech. Like, have you seen the movie Rudy when they're standing there and they're about to do their walk-on tryout and the assistant coach goes, your greatest value to the team is we don't care if you get hurt. Like they give you that speech <laughs> and then, you know, you go down there, get fitted and, and you're out of practice. And it took about five minutes of practice for me to realize, Oh my gosh, those coaches who evaluated me evaluated me correctly. I am not good enough to be out here. These guys are amazing. Like you walk out there and Javon curse is standing there with his shirt off. Like, it's not, you're not really like us normal folks aren't the same species as a guy who is going to be a first round draft pick and, and be a feared NFL edge rusher. And at that time he was, he was still a linebacker and he'd been a safety when he signed. So it, it just, it was amazing, but it was very educational. And I, I can't thank everybody there enough for treating me so well. The one thing people always ask is, is, you know, how do they treat the walk-ons? They treat the walk-ons any differently than the scholarship guys. It, I, I only know my experience, but in, in Steve Spurrier's program, once you were on the team, you were on the team and it became a meritocracy. Like there were no politics after that. It didn't matter if you were a scholarship guy or a walk-on, if you could play, you could play. And there were guys in my walk-on class who could really play like Alex Willis, Florida fans will remember that name because he, he became a scholarship receiver and, and did contribute later in his career. Like I didn't realize he was a walk-on. For the first few days, I just thought he's, he's this dude's a scholarship guy, but you know, he'd fallen through the cracks and, and it had to walk on. So uh, it, it was a very educational experience and I, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I think it's it has helped inform what I do as a reporter covering the sport. 
uh, understanding what, what some of these guys are going through, what those lifts feel like at, at six in the morning, what those runs feel like. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm very grateful I got a chance to do it because I probably wasn't good enough to be there, but I, I do appreciate it. All right, let's, let's go to the next question. This one's, a, this one's a fun one. And we go back to Doug. Doug is our Kent State alum who's trying to pick where he wants to go. What is your ideal barbecue plate? And in parentheses, he put meats, sauces, sides, and desserts within reason, because as much as we'd love to, we'd all love to eat everything. That's not always possible. This is a great question. I, I, this is, and this came up last week. Uh, a bunch of us were in the, in Mobile for the senior bowl and uh, Trevor Sikama, who works for pro football focus, funny guy, great dude. He's got a policy at barbecue joints. He tweeted about this and he went to Dreamland, which is you know, that's in Mobile. You you go to Meat Boss, you don't go to Dreamland. But he went to Dreamland, and and he reminded me of his policy with this tweet is three sides minimum. Which if you know anything about Dreamland, like that is no. <laughs> they just started doing sides when they started franchising. Like the original Dreamland in Tuscaloosa used to be known as you can get ribs or you can get white bread or just ribs. Like the the side is they're going to hand you a loaf of white bread and you can just sop up some sauce with it. So barbecue sides, unless they're great, are unimportant. So the ideal barbecue plate is as many meats as possible. Uh, if you're in Texas, you probably want to try the Trinity. They, this is this would be brisket, pork ribs, and sausage. And that's what the, the folks in Texas will tell you that the true measure of a barbecue joint in Texas is those three things and how well they do those, those three things. And you know, there's a lot of places in Texas that just don't put much thought into size. Like they may have a pot of beans sitting there and, and some coleslaw. Uh, the newer places, I think, have, have gotten a little little bougier and uh and and put more emphasis on sides but you know and i i would go for those three things in texas because it's the trinity uh less sausage anywhere else i sausage isn't my favorite of the barbecue meats anyway but especially if you leave texas it's it's just not as high on the on the importance list for most pit masters. So like if you're in the deep South, you got to do pulled pork, like you got to, and preferably a pulled pork sandwich. That's, that's the preferred barbecue delivery method in a lot of the Southern States. So now if you're North Carolina, you're doing the, the whole hog chop pork thing, but that's a completely Eastern North Carolina is a completely different animal. So I, I would say if you're at a more standard barbecue joint, if I'm in Texas, I'm doing the brisket. If I'm not in Texas, I want to see the brisket before I order it because there's a really good chance it's not worth ordering. Uh, pork ribs, almost always. If they do a beef rib, well, also you probably want to look at the brisket too, but look at the beef rib. Uh, if you find a good beef rib, which again, usually in Texas, get that. But I'd say pork ribs and pulled pork in most deep south places that you, you want to definitely try. And then if a place is famous for its chicken or famous for its turkey, then go for that. But load up on the meats. You know, it's it's good. All the keto people love you. Sides, if they matter to you or if they're really great, then go for it. Like if you're at Southern Soul in St. Simons Island, Georgia, you're getting Brunswick stew. You just it's they make some of the best Brunswick stew. Um, if you're at Bees Crackling Barbecue in Atlanta, you're getting hash and rice. Now, hash and rice is one of those things that if I say that to someone who isn't from the state of South Carolina, they have no idea what I'm talking about. They're like, corned beef hash? 
No, hash and rice is its own thing. And and so like my relatives would sit around a pot for all night. They, they, they'd make hash and, you know, so they have a big old like ore that you'd use for a canoe and stir the hash all night and then you pour it over rice. And so you, you find that it's, it's a lot of the stuff that's just kind of left over from the pig and it's delicious. It is my, probably my favorite barbecue side. And, and if you go to some of the places in South Carolina, you'll find it. South Carolina is a very buffet based in, in the, in the Midlands area, Columbia, down toward Charleston. Uh, they have more buffet action and they'll have the hash and rice on the buffet. And it's pretty awesome. But Bees Crackling in Atlanta, and I, they, they originally started in Savannah, they are, they, they make a great hash and rice. So, you know, I, you get the pulled pork there and they do the, uh, they do the hoe cakes, the, the corn cakes. And so get the pulled pork, put it between the hoe, get extra hoe cakes and put it between the hoe cakes and get the hash and rice. And you're, you're done there. The, the ribs are good too, but uh, you, you're going to be full and, and you're going to be happy. So I would say load up on the meats. Don't worry so much about the size. Don't worry about dessert. Uh, there are going to be places with good banana pudding. There are going to be places that that have good pie that somebody brought in. But focus on the meat. And then if you got room for dessert, great. But don't let that distract you from what you're there for, which is being a carnivore. Hope that helps. Been a lot of fun. We got Stars Matter on the feed on Thursday. If there's any big breaking news, we'll, of course, drop an emergency podcast. And then Ari Wasserman joins for the Friday show. He's having a week now. Ari Wasserman, his mind has been blown by the whole Lincoln Riley, the hatred from Oklahoma people, and and the idea that moving to Los Angeles would be preferable to living in Oklahoma. Ari believes that everyone feels this way and does not understand that there are people who don't feel that way. We'll discuss that with him on Friday, and uh, I guarantee you it will be hilarious. I'll talk to you then.